Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. To summarize and simplify a little bit, one of the major focuses of this podcast is the how of happiness, what we can actually do in our lives, practically speaking, to increase our natural foundation of happiness and well-being. There's endless advice out there about how to become happier, but most of it is anecdotal in nature. That's why I'm so happy to be joined today by one of the leading researchers on the scientific study of human happiness, Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky. Dr. Lubomirsky is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Riverside. She's the author of the bestseller, The How of Happiness, a scientific approach to getting the life you want, and The Myths of Happiness, what should make you happy but doesn't, and what shouldn't make you happy but does. Doctor, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. How are you doing? Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm good. Great. So you were gracious enough to squeeze us into a pretty busy schedule, so I'd like to kind of jump right into the material here. Your work has really focused on the practical how of what makes people happy. And one of the more interesting things that I ran into when doing a little bit of research prior to this conversation was the breakdown that you give of the factors that contribute, generally speaking, to human happiness. So what you said, to again paraphrase kind of loosely here, and you're welcome to correct me with any additional detail, is that about 50% of what contributes is based on genetics, sort of some kind of given genetic set point for happiness. And then about 40% are things that lie largely under our individual control. And then the final 10% comes from what you call it, I believe, life circumstance, things like health, employment, and so on. Uh, For me, I found that 10% number just startlingly low. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Sure. And I'm really glad you asked me about these contributing factors because that, I call it the pie chart of happiness, is, is often misinterpreted. Mm, so I just mm-hmm. want to make sure to clarify to listeners what, what it really means. So starting with that 10%, so first of all, these numbers are averages and estimates based on very, lots of studies. And so they're not like set in stone because people, I think, think like, oh, it's, it's exactly 10%. It's always 10%. <laughs> um, so that 10% really comes, to, and, and that will be revised depending, you know, as more research comes in. That 10%, is surprising, right? Because we sort of think like, oh, if only I got married and I moved to that city where I want to live and and had that job I want to have and have a baby or had plastic surgery or whatever, like then I would be happier. And those things do make us happier. They just don't make us happier for as much or as long as we think. But I do, there's a huge caveat, which is that there are some life circumstances that make a huge difference to our happiness and happiness. So if you live in a war zone in Syria, or if you're in an abusive relationship, or if you live in poverty, that's going to make you very, very unhappy. And so the 10% number only really applies to people who are kind of fairly comfortable, who mm. already have like, mm-hmm. you know, pretty good lives. And just like improving their life circumstances is going to improve their happiness, you know, that much. So I just wanted to kind of make that clear for listeners. That's really great because that actually addresses a follow-up question that I thought of, which was precisely what you just said, which is that you're kind of speaking, correct me again if I'm wrong here, almost more to sort of the median of the distribution or maybe thought about another way. There's a certain amount of evidence and research on benefits to happiness of your income increasing past a certain point. Mm -hmm. And at least what I've read, you of course know much more about this, is that gains are pretty flat after a number like $60,000 or $70,000 a year. Is that more or less accurate? Well, there's a study that's kind of a famous study that showed that after, I think, I believe it was $75,000 a year. Okay, there it is. Yeah. 
more income doesn't increase your happiness that much. But you're right that it's sort of about like the average or median. Um, mm-hmm. Because obviously that number 75,000 is an average. It doesn't apply, for example, if you live in New York or London. And more money does make us happier. It's just sort of, it sort of plateaus a little bit more like that, or the effect isn't as, as strong, you know, with higher income. But you're right, like, you know, when we, when we rely on research to make these statements, we have to sort of remember that research is really talking about kind of the average effect. It's not talking about the tails, you know, of the distribution, like sort of the outliers or, or just people who are kind of really high or really low mm-hmm. on something. Yeah. Doctor, so I, I really appreciate your focus here on individual differences and making room for them. Mm-hmm. And that said, a lot of the 10% number is implicitly a kind of broad critique of typical consumerist, materialist cultures and their orientations, always striving and scratching, often at considerable cost to personal happiness in order to get some kind of gain in one's circumstance or money or status or situations. And implicitly in your research is a kind of critique of that of that strategy altogether. And I just wondered what you thought about that. And if you've encountered people, maybe from the business world or uh, otherwise, who sort of push back against that. Thank you, Rick. I absolutely agree with, with that comment that, you know, many of us believe and certainly sort of in Western culture that like more money or being famous or being powerful or being beautiful, that is really the key to happiness. And those are all sort of part of that 10% number. Those are the, the life circumstances that even when we gain those things, like it might make us happy temporarily but it doesn't make us happy forever. And also some, there's also harms also of, of a, trying to strive for those things, the material things and the, the extrinsic motivations as they're called in psychology. Yeah, in terms of pushback, I don't know. Like I, I feel like that, that message, maybe because I hear it so often, like that message really has been disseminated a lot. Mm. And my book, The Myths of Happiness is really about that too. It's about like, yeah. there are these myths that if only I had X, Y, or Z, then I would be happy. And so... I and others argue that it's really that happiness is really something that's inside of us, mm. not so much outside of us. Um, now, of course, as I mentioned, you know, you have to have like things pretty decent in your life to even kind of get a shot at happiness. But once they are decent, that it's really up to us, you know, how we think about the world, how we behave in our daily lives, you know, what kind of goals we pursue that really matter for our happiness. Right. Well, let's talk more then about that slice of the pie, that roughly 40% or so that has to do with our own activities, as you put it. Could you speak to some of the major headlines in that 40% slice of the pie, including what people can do in everyday life to uh, encourage their own happiness? Sure, sure. And before I do that, I do want to just, again, reiterate that those numbers, like the 40%, is not yeah. not set in stone. It, it could. I generally, lately, basically have been saying that it's just, there's a large proportion of mm, happiness mm-hmm. that is under our control. I don't know what that number is, but it, it's, it's, it's larger than a lot of people think. Because yeah. a lot of people think, oh, happiness is something you have it or you don't, or, or that it's about your life circumstances. So, well, you know, my laboratory for the last about, 20 years actually, Mm. starting 20 years ago, 1999, we started doing what we call happiness interventions, where we started to test, you know, in an experimental kind of systematic, rigorous way, whether practicing certain kinds of strategies, engaging in certain kinds of activities or practices actually can make people happier over time relative to engaging in neutral activities. So Mm. what we're doing is essentially like clinical trials 
But instead of testing a new drug treatment, we might be testing gratitude. You know, does that work to make people happy? And whereas a medical researcher might ask questions like, what is the appropriate dosage of a drug? Or should, should some people not take this drug? We're asking the same kinds of questions. Mm. Is there an appropriate dosage of gratitude? Should some people or certain, so maybe some cultures where gratitude is not going to be effective, it might actually backfire. So those are the kinds of questions that we've been pursuing in our research. What have you found? What are some of the major findings that, that people sure. especially can take away and use today, as it were? Right, right. Well, we, we focus on gratitude and kindness mm. as a way to become happier, in part because they're both very powerful strategies and they're also very complex and rich behaviors and emotions. So starting with gratitude, lots of studies have found that if you practice gratitude, either by counting your blessings or writing gratitude letters to people in your life, that makes people happier. But gratitude doesn't always work and it doesn't work for everyone. So for example, it turns out that people who are very depressed feel that they are a burden on their friends and family. Mm, And some of them mm -hmm. want to end their lives because of that reason. And if you ask a very depressed person to write gratitude letters, they might actually feel more of a burden than they felt before. So that would be completely counterproductive and, and very harmful. In certain cultures, Expressing gratitude makes people feel guilty or ashamed for having needed the help in the, in the first place or just for not having repaid or for not thanking the person sooner. And so it's a very complex emotion. So overall, it does make people happier and feeling, I think it's an antidote to, to taking things for granted, right? Like sort of being grateful for what you have in your life kind of neutralizes some, some negative emotions and, and sort of neutralizes boredom actually. Hmm. So yes, I think gratitude is really, really, really interesting. And then we have lots of studies where we ask people to do acts of kindness on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Usually our standard paradigm for four weeks, and any listener can start doing this today, for four weeks or longer, one day a week, say every Monday, do three acts of kindness that you don't normally do. They could be anything, you know, from small things to big things. And people become happier as they do that. It's it's almost ironic that if you want to make yourself happy, you should try to make other people happier. And kindness has effects beyond happiness. So we have a really exciting study where we found that doing acts of kindness for others led to changes in RNA gene expression. Wow. Mm. We collected blood before and after the study, the intervention. That's really fascinating. So doing acts of kindness for others relative to doing acts of kindness for yourself or, or relative to do something really neutral to basically led to a downregulation of pro-inflammatory genes. Mm. So think more inflammation is bad, so you want downregulation of pro-inflammatory genes. Mm. So that is really cool. We're trying to replicate that now because that's just one study. I mean, it's published, but we want to make sure that's replicable. We also found in another study with kids that doing acts of kindness led kids to actually become more popular with their classmates, mm. even when the acts of kindness were done outside the classroom. Hmm. They like you more when you're a kind person, even when you're not doing it in front of them. And now we're also really interested in exploring not just sort of the happiness seeker, but their partners or the recipients of kindness or the targets of mm, gratitude letters mm-hmm. or the witnesses. We have a line of research right now we, that we actually don't have data yet looking at like one, what, you know, with expressions of gratitude, how does it affect the recipient of the target of gratitude? Because that could be, sometimes it's uncomfortable to receive gratitude and sometimes it's wonderful. What about witnessing gratitude? When you are on Facebook and you hear someone kind of thank someone publicly, sometimes it's very positive and sometimes it's not. Mm, mm -hmm. Or at work, you know, someone 
the boss emails the entire team and says, hey, I really want to shout out to this person. You know, so, so the witnessing gratitude can have, I think, mostly positive effects, but sometimes negative effects. So we're kind of interested in all these different perspectives. That was a really fascinating dive into the research there, Doctor. Thank you for that. I mean, some of that I, um, I, I would... I would imagine that we were kind of more or less aware of, and some of that I had absolutely never heard of before. For instance, that difference in actual gene expression based off of an act of kindness or mm-hmm. or not, I think is a really fascinating intersection of those two things. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. To, to speak to something that you kind of alluded to there, which is these backfire effects, ways that somebody could take a good or quote-unquote good objectively sort of happiness-seeking action, but have it backfire on them in some way. If you are somebody who, say, struggles with happiness a little bit, and you're interested in taking some of these positive actions that you're indicating, whether they be gratitude, acts of kindness, or whatever, but you struggle with the backfire effects from them, are there things that a person can do to limit those backfires, or are you just kind of stuck with them? Yeah, that's a really good question. I guess I would suggest, again, I think it's important to keep in mind the scientific findings, mm. but also to keep in mind that there are a lot of individual differences. And so to do some kind of me search, right? Mm. So mm-hmm. I think you will know best. Like, let's say you, you start doing acts of kindness and maybe you're an introvert. So it just makes you kind of uncomfortable or awkward going around helping people in person. So you might adjust that and you might help people in ways that are more comfortable for you. Or let's say you do acts of kindness and they backfire because they're not helping they're not helpful, right? We have all, that's all happened to us. Mm. Or maybe you're already a very giving person. And so that is not the right strategy for you. You should try something else. And so I guess I would suggest that the happiness seeker try different ways of in, engaging in these practices and see, and maybe even keep a little diary or rate their happiness on a daily level basis to see what's happening. And then when it's backfiring, I would try something else or I would try it differently. Because there's so many different ways to... I mean, there are probably hundreds of happiness practices. And so there's so many different ways of practicing these strategies that I think all of us can sort of find something that works for us if Mm. we sort of keep trying. What have you found in terms of lasting trade effects? In other words, I could imagine that as long as people are doing happiness practices, it's a little bit like pumping up a balloon. You know, as long as you keep pumping it, the balloon is big and it floats. But over time, what happens when people, let's say, stop doing these practices? Do they regress back to their prior set point or have they acquired greater trait happiness broadly defined along the way? Yeah, that's a really great question. And that's actually kind of like a billion dollar question is sort of, we all know how to make ourselves happy temporarily, but how do we really get durable Mm -hmm. effects that last? And so And actually, my lab is trying to figure that out right now. It's actually Mm. one of our main missions. Ideally, you want to create habits that will last. So like after our intervention is over, the person has learned how to, you know, say practice gratitude whenever they feel down or every morning or once a week, whatever works for them. Um, And so it becomes a habit. Uh, But even when things become a habit, they might slowly kind of lose their potency, right? Because... Mm -hmm. You know, the first time you do something, you get a big boost out of it. And then over time, you adapt to the effects. So that's where what I was talking about before, kind of like trying new things and varying what you do comes in. So you don't sort of do the same. It's kind of like when you're trying to exercise, you don't want to go running like the exact same route every day, you know, for for months and months because you're just going to get bored and you're not going to want to do it anymore. So you have to sort of vary what you do. 
one of my grad students and I recently visited NYU, the lab of Peter Goldwitzer and Gabrielle Ottingen, who are sort of experts in how to create like lasting behavior change. And mm-hmm. they have this program that some listeners will know called WHOOP. And we're sort of trying, we're going to tr- actually test it experimentally with happiness strategies. So the idea there is that let's say you want to be a happier person and you want to be a more grateful person. You have to identify your wish, which is the W in the WHOOP. You know, what is my wish? I want to be a more grateful person. What is the obstacle to that wish? Why have I not accomplished that yet? So you think about that. Well, maybe the obstacle is I have a lot of ruminations, you know, uh, or I'm too busy. And then how am I going to overcome that obstacle? And then my favorite part of WHOOP is using if-then plans and sort of you say to yourself, the next time I have this rumination, if I have it, then this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to distract myself in this way or I'm going to use this strategy. So the if-then plans work really, really well when people are trying to change behavior. Anyway, that's one idea. It's one strategy that we're trying to mm-hmm. use to get these happiness practices to stick and to sort of lead to, to lasting happiness change. But unfortunately, we, we don't really know. We, we haven't achieved mm. that yet. So that is a work in progress. I've been really struck here by what we were talking about just a moment ago about the movement from state to trade happiness mm-hmm. and how good we are at momentary experiences that are under the general heading of happiness and well-being, both, let's say, hedonic forms of happiness and well-being, as well as more eudaimonic forms that you're well aware of in terms of a sense of meaning, purpose, and contribution. Mm-hmm. But when those practices fall away, what's left within us, right? And it's really striking that we actually don't know that much about how to help the experiential residues, let's say, of our various happiness practices to sink in so that over time we develop greater trait well-being and other aspects of that, like resilience. And I think of a lot of people I've known, so I've been a practicing therapist as well as a writer, and A lot of people have experiences of feeling cared about, but when those momentary transient experiences go away, the causes of them go away, inside themselves, they don't feel very cared about. They don't feel like a good person who's worthy of love even. And I just wonder what your reflections are about this deep question. As you said, it's the million or billion dollar (laughs) question these days. A million dollars ain't what it used to be, right? It's the (laughs) billion dollar question these days. How to increase trait happiness through these various psychological technologies that we're already pretty good at. I know that is such a good, it's such a hard, as you say, such a deep question. Um, I mean, one of my, I mean, my, my thinking is that the more, you know, what is, what is our life? What is life, but not just a set of experiences, right? It's a set of moments. Mm -hmm. And the more moments that we have, let's say, and you mentioned being cared for, Harry Reese, who's a collaborator of mine, has a theory that the, basically the key to relationships is to feel valued, appreciated, and cared for or loved. Mm. And I really, the more I think about it, the more I, I really believe it, I really buy into it. So I guess m- my thinking is that the more experiences you have of where you feel loved and appreciated and valued, the more, I guess, that will translate in what you're calling trade happiness and, and also to your self-esteem and to sort of, you know, your, your feelings of self-worth. And so we want to create more of such moments. And so the more the, and those moments will aggregate and hopefully turn into like a different self, 
a sort of version of ourselves. Yeah, I, may, I don't know, maybe I'm too optimistic because as you say, you know, <laughs> after you have those experiences, they're over and then you don't feel that anymore. But I, I don't know. I, I, I guess it, it's almost like a philosophical question. Like, what are we, right? And what makes us who we are? And what is sort of our true sort of self-esteem or our true happiness? And so uh, I guess, yeah, so I guess I'd like to think or I, I, and mm-hmm. I hope to test that it's about the aggregation of these experiences. And it's also about attention, right? So William James, who's considered the father of psychology, has this great quote, and he says, our experience is what we agree to attend to. And I'll say that again for the Mm -hmm. listeners. Our experience is what we agree to attend to. So where we direct our attention, where we choose to direct our attention is our experience. So we can choose to direct our attention on, say, remembering that moment where we felt cared for or on some rumination that's negative and makes us feel worthless. (laughs) And so that's partly why our happiness is under our control because we can choose where we can direct our attention. So yes, I guess I'm sort of an optimist in that sense that I feel like these are things that we can try to use to to lead to sort of a new self. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a wonderful reflection. And although one person's experience is absolutely not lab data, I would say that that's very much my personal experience, just speaking as an individual and probably the experience of many of the people listening to this. We're slowly running out of time with you here, doctor. So I would like to kind of leave you with just one final question if you have a moment to to think about it here, which is that based on all of the research that you've done, and obviously you've done an enormous amount of work in this territory and really considered it on a, on a deep level yourself personally, If you had the opportunity to kind of go back in time and speak to yourself as a younger person, a younger version of yourself, maybe a child or a young adult, what would you want to say to that person? What would you want to kind of leave them with? Hmm. That's such a great question. You know, when I was young, especially when I was a teenager, I guess starting from like 13 to 17, I was really insecure and I felt like I had all these problems and I, I really did not believe that I could change that, you know, mm. I could change. I, you know, it's interesting. So this idea of the growth mindset, right? That we can grow and change and that and our happiness is changeable or that our social skill, like I felt like I, I didn't have very good social skills, that you could just build those skills. And I really did not believe that. And when I talk to teenagers now, and I see that again, like young people where they're just like, no, I have this issue. I have this problem. And that's it. It is what it is. And, I'll, and I can't change it. I'm like, no, no, you can change it. And they just don't believe me. And I guess I kind of want to tell that to my you know young self that's like you can become happier you can you know make new more friends because i was very very shy and and really mm. had trouble sort of with social interactions and i and i did you know or i or for example when i was a student and i had i was terrible at at oral presentations i was just so self-conscious and and i and it's hard to understand back then, like you, you I could really have improved with practice. So, mm. and I guess that's what I want to tell like all younger people or older people too, that like, there's so many things about us that really we can change. And it's not just like, oh, if all, like you have to be more attractive to make that happen, or you have to be richer to make that happen, or you have to live in a different place or have a different set of parents, because there's so much that is, that is under our control. Yeah, doctor, I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It was a really wonderful conversation. I know that we both got a lot out of it. And I thought that there was so much here that uh, had such kind of depth and insight to it. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you to both 
Forrest and Rick. I mean, your questions were really deep and, and really thoughtful, and I really enjoyed answering them. Thank you. Today, we had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky. We started by exploring Dr. Lubomirsky's pie chart of happiness, which suggests that around half of the causes of happiness are due to genetic factors, a big chunk fall under our own control, and a relatively small percentage are due to life circumstance. She really highlighted how these numbers are averages and refer mostly to people who don't have some particularly debilitating life circumstance to deal with. We then talked about what goes into the 40%-ish of factors that lie under our own control and what some of the optimal strategies are that people can pursue to increase their own happiness. During the course of our conversation, Dr. Lubomirsky highlighted gratitude, acts of kindness, and savoring as being particularly effective. We then spent a little time on backfire effects, which are the negative results people can sometimes receive from trying objectively positive practices, and she highlighted the importance of finding a strategy that works well for you. She also shared about some of the most interesting topics her team is currently exploring, including how acts of kindness can actually alter the expression of our genes. We closed with the billion-dollar question, what we can actually do to increase trait happiness. This is an area that's ripe for more research, but Dr. Lubomirsky suggested her own view that repeated positive experiences do more than bump up our happiness in the moment. They might actually have long-term effects on our set point of happiness. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We'll be back with a short Just One Thing episode in a few days. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate it, leave a review maybe, and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. It really does help us out. Also, as long as we're here, I would like to remind you about Dr. Rick Hansen's monthly meditation program. I'll be including a link to it in the description of today's episode. It's a great way to carve out a little bit of extra time each day, week, or month for some focused meditation on your own. So until next time, thanks for listening. 